Now welcome back to our uh, regular endoscopy news podcast. Today we have a smorgasbord of uh, 14 articles to be reviewed. These are all articles which are in press due to be published in the near future. We're starting with uh, peg feeding. That was a review in the Digestive Diseases and Sciences of the inpatient mortality after peg placement. Uh, it's an American study which reminded us that back in 2006 the mortality rate was 11% after peg placement. They then reviewed further 155,000 more recently and concluded that the mortality had decreased from 11% down to 6.6% with improved selection of patients considering that the mortality rate in patients above the age of 75 admitted with a stroke can be as high as 26%. There's also been studies in the past, for example, of Medicare patients who, after peg placement, can have an in-hospital mortality rate of up to 15% and a one-year mortality rate of around 60%. These are high figures. In fact, the NCE pod review of 2004 did cover peg placement and commented that uh, there is little evidence that peg insertion in an older person actually increases survival, perhaps with the exception of motor neuron disease. And therefore, the NCE pod review concluded that we should look for an improvement in quality of life rather than any expectation that survival will improve when we decide about peg feeding. Anyway, that was a nice part of the NC pod review. They then went on to say that peg placement is an area uh, of endoscopy where things are going badly wrong. They reviewed 719 deaths after peg placement. <laughs> Nine of these deaths happened actually in the procedure room and 159 happened within a day or two after placing the peg. Pretty awful figures. They concluded that one in five PEG procedures were either futile or not indicated at all, usually because the patient was actually too poorly uh, to have a PEG placed. Uh, at the time, there's a common, there was a common misconception that uh, PEG feeding prevented aspiration pneumonia. In fact, we now know that most patients who die after PEG feeding actually die from uh, aspiration pneumonia. The NCPOID review also found that about 20% of patients who had a PEG uh, placed had it because of dementia, even though all relevant studies had even at the time shown that uh, patients with dementia don't show any improved outcomes after PEG feeding. It's um, topical because the ESG is due to publish guidelines on enteral feeding tubes in adults. This is part one relates to indications for feeding tubes. Uh, it's out already and I only have one gripe about it. They include eating disorders as an indication for nasal tube insertion. As far as I know, there's only been one kind of meta-analysis on this topic published by Rizzo et al. in uh, Nutrition in Clinical Practice 2019. They reviewed 10 studies and found that the average rate of weight gain seemed to be better in patients fed nasally than those who were fed normally. 
out of those 10 studies, though, only three studied the psychological outcomes of nasal feeding, and only four assessed patients post-discharge. And so I don't know if we got enough data to recommend nasal feeding in patients with uh, eating disorders. The problem with nasogastric feeding, of course, is that it's, it's uncomfortable for the patient, it's rather unsightly, and of course prone to becoming dislodged or blocked, and uh, it requires frequent exchanges, which is traumatic for the patient. And, and I want to see further studies, really, of uh, do patients with eating disorders have a better quality of life or survival after after they leave hospital with a nasal feeding tube in place compared to those eating normally and what does having a nasal feeding tube in place do for relationships or career prospects or, or chance of remission of the condition there's lots and lots of questions that remains unanswered i think before we can really be sure that placing a nasal feeding tube in patients with eating disorders is the correct thing to do anyway on to part two of the ESG guideline, which contains some interesting nuggets. For example, when you place a jejunal extension, put a little stitch through the end of the feeding tube, which you then, and then you put a, a clip through the through the stitch and you clip the side of the of the jejunal extension to the side of the duodenum or the jejunum, however far you can get it down. It's then less likely to coil back into the stomach when you pull the tube back. That's a good little clue. Another little clue included in the ESG guideline is that when you are placing a peg uh, with a view to having a jejunal extension, you should try to place the peg side as close to the antrum as you can to create a better angle. The ESG guideline group did highlight though that uh, outcomes are better when you have a percutaneously placed PEDGE feeding tube rather than a PEG extension. The percutaneous feeding tubes lasted longer and there were fewer endoscopic reinterventions because the tube called back into the stomach. The guidelines also say that the placement of a feeding tube is a low-risk procedure and there's no need to stop any antiplatelet therapies or warfarin, etc. For peg placement, however, there is a risk of immediate bleeding, although that's only 0.3%. And in these patients, uh, aspirin can be continued, but the other antithrombotic medication should be stopped. No surprise there, then, I guess. They also highlighted that the single factor which seemed to predict early complications, that's, it, that's within a week of placing the PEG feeding tube, was malignancy. Late complications, that's after a week, included age above the age of 70 and diabetes. And a 30-day mortality, which was usually from aspiration pneumonia, of course, was linked with thrombocytopenia and elevated CRP, low albumin, elevated creatinine levels, Patients, by the way, who had strokes and a peg feeding tube, in their review, uh, the average survival was only 11 months compared to 27 months for peg feeding placed for other reasons. After you place the peg, the ESG guideline highlights that we should place the external cutaneous fixator quite tightly at about half a centimeter above the skin. Uh, and of course, what this does is pull the, the stomach onto the anterior gastric wall. This reduces the, the risk of leaking in the first three to five days. But after about a week or so, uh, the tube should be gently moved from two to five centimeter inwards and outwards in order to prevent 
uh, the buried bumper syndrome. After this maneuver, the tube should be pulled back and fixed in its initial position. I didn't know that actually, but then I guess I don't look after patients after the peg feeding tube has been placed. I just do the placement. Well, I do one more thing. I remove them as well. And the ESG recommend that removal should be by cutting the tube at the level of the skin and then pushing the internal bumper into the stomach with a stylet or something, the so-called cut and push technique. Uh, endoscopic retrieval of the bumper they only recommend in patients who's had previous bowel surgery and patients who are at risk of strictures or an ileus. No news there then, I guess. Now we move on to the hepatopancreatic tract and there was a study published or should be published in the journal Endoscopy on the use of uh, fine needle biopsy, EUS guided fine needle biopsy of pancreatic cysts. Uh, this is a study from Denmark where they had 101 patients included. They found that needling cysts did change the management in about 10 patients, which was good, but also had a very similar adverse event rate. Nine out of 10 complications was acute pancreatitis, and this was severe uh, acute pancreatitis, and one patient even died from it. Now, the fourth study published in surgical endoscopy, or due to be published in surgical endoscopy, on the use of the Ovesco clip. It caught my eye because the study is from Ecuador. They looked at 95 patients uh, in a single tertiary referral center. These were patients with a high-risk bleeding ulcers treated with either Ovesco clip or with standard therapy. And I should say that standard therapy in Ecuador, it doesn't appear to be adrenaline and heat like anywhere else in the world, but instead adrenaline plus clip, for which there's, of course, much less evidence. Anyway, they concluded that patients, it was a retrospective re review, of course, so bias is no doubt rife in this study, uh, but it's nevertheless informative, I think. They found that patients treated with an Ovesco clip had a shorter medium procedure time, which I can't imagine. Imagine that you're down there, you've seen the ulcer, you want to treat it with a clip. With one, you just turn towards your assistant and ask for a clip, bang, 60 seconds later, the clip is in place. With the Ovesco clip, you have to put the scope out and then place the clip over it and then kind of calibrate that, that string that takes, that must take much more time. But in Ecuador, apparently they're very, very fast uh, with the Ovesco clip and very, very slow with, uh, with placing normal clips. It doesn't quite make any sense. They included a cost analysis and, and I was just surprised to, to see that in um, Ecuador, an Ovesco clip is $1,000, but a standard ordinary clip is $200. They're extraordinarily expensive. So they found that the, the use of an Ovesco clip versus normal clips were cost neutral, which I think anywhere else in the world it isn't. There was no significant difference in the re-bleeding rate. And of course, that's the only reason why you would consider an Ovesco clip in the first place. Uh, I think the case for an Ovesco clip in, a, in emergency peptic ulcer bleeding remains unproven until we have a double-blind randomized prospective study. And then on to one of my favorite topics, uh, 
G poem, which is, of course, stands for Gastric Peroral Endoscopic Myotomy for Refractory Gastroparesis. I love it. This was a study in endoscopy due to be published in May. There were seven expert French centers which looked back at uh, their patients who had G poem done for refractory gastroparesis. There were 76 patients. They were assessed with, I don't know if you heard of this, the Gastroparesis Cardinal Symptom Index Score, or GCSI, which basically is you score bloating and nausea, early satiety, postprandial fullness, epigastric pain, and vomiting on a scale of non mild, moderate, severe, or very severe. Vomiting uh, is counted as one vomit a day, is one point, up to a maximum of four vomits a day. Anyway, uh, 76 patients included in this study, and uh, they concluded that a year later, two out of three patients were regarded as a clinical success. They define clinical success as a drop of one in the GCSE's uh, score. So that, to put that in context, what that actually means is that a, a patient drops drops one score in, in each of these categories or maybe become completely normal in one of these five categories. So they, 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 they no longer complain about epigastric pain, but they still have postprandial fullness, early satiety, bloating, nausea, and vomiting, or something like that. So I, I, wouldn't, I would hesitate to call this a, a clinical success, guys. You would have thought patients need much more than a, a one-point reduction in the symptoms. I, I would have regarded a clinical success as that is kind of very mild, very mild bloating, mild satiety, mild postprandial fullness, mild epigastric pain, and no vomiting. That, in my mind, that would be a clinical success. In the conclusion, they regarded these results as a, a confirmation that G-POEM is effective which of course doesn't tally with their final sentence, which is that a prospective sham control trial is urgently needed. We know that delayed gastric emptying is complicated. Uh, Professor Jan Tuck from Leuven in Belgium gave an excellent presentation on this topic at the recent BSG campus. He pointed out that several studies have all confirmed that there is no relationship between symptom severity or weight loss and the the degree of delay in gastric emptying. That's interesting, isn't it? And indeed, in this study from France, the only symptom subscore which seemed to which seemed to reliably improve was early satiety so patients with the most severe nausea or bloating most severe postprandial fullness or the least severe postprandial fullness epigastric pain or vomiting didn't have any any predictive impact on whether they would improve with with g poem or not so it's a complicated area this Furthermore, Jan Tuck pointed out that drug interventions which accelerate gastric emptying doesn't make any difference to the symptoms. Yes, you heard that right. It's actually even worse than that because there was a study by Parisha et al. in Gastroenterology 2015. The reference is on the website, of course, that it was patients with the slowest gastric emptying who were the most likely to feel better after 48 weeks. It's ridiculous. The, the, the whole idea that improving gastric emptying by the G-POing actually can improve the patient's symptoms, I think, appears very optimistic and unproven. 
Jan Tuck called for a, an RCT of a sham versus real G poem. And, uh, and of course, this is what the, the French also is asking for. Article 6 is from the USA. It's entitled Spatial Distribution of Dysplasia in Barrett's Esophagus Before and After RFA, published in Endoscopy. This is old news, of course, but it's important old news, so you should know about it. Basically, this was a, a review of 13 studies, some 2,000 patients, uh, looking at where the dysplasia recurs after RFA. And uh, dysplasia recurred in about 8% of patients, and we know from other studies that risk of getting a return of the dysplasia depends on the severity of dysplasia. Low-grade dysplasia are less likely to return, severe dysplasia or intubucosal cancer is more likely to return. In two out of three patients with recurrent dysplasia, this happened at the gastroesophageal junction, at the top of the gastric folds. The rest, one third, in the distal esophagus now covered with a neosquamous mucosa. In most cases, 90% of cases, the recurrences were visible within the esophagus, but at the GOJ, well, in about half of cases, you could see that the dysplasia was returning. And for this reason, when patients return, uh, of course, they need to continue the surveillance after RFA. It's very important to um, take samples from the columnar side of the squamous columnar junction. The histopathologist will be wondering what on earth you want them to look for. Of course, they can't confirm or refute the presence of a Barrett's esophagus. So therefore, you have to inform them that what you are looking for is dysplasia. What happens, you see, is that over time, the squamous columnar junction slowly creeps up the esophagus imperceptibly, millimeter by millimeter. You can't tell, really, that that squamous columnar junction is slowly moving up uh, when the patient comes back for their annual uh, surveillance. But if you take biopsies, the histopathologist can tell you that dysplasia is returning. And if you start to get dysplasia in these biopsies, the patients will need a top-up RFA. We already know this, but nevertheless, it's important to emphasize it. Imagine a world where every single detail is designed to save lives. Where everyone works for the benefit of patient health and comfort, as well as clinical institutions. By delivering cleverly engineered technology and dedicated services to support your fight against diseases, cancer, and infections. A world where you will always find smart and sophisticated answers to your daily challenges. This is the world of Pentax Medical. Welcome to the world of intelligence. Now, Manuscript number seven, we're moving on, is also from endoscopy. It's on the topic of double balloon enteroscopy in patients with FAP. This is a study from Japan where they, they did a total of 72 double balloon enteroscopies in patients with FAP and removed a phenomenal 1,237 polyps. It's amazing. So they went a long way down beyond the, the, the first and second and third part of the duodenum. 
there were 11 adverse events, seven delayed bleeds, four episodes of acute pancreatitis. And what did they have to show for it? One polyp out of 1,237 contained intermucosal cancer. And where did they find it? In the second part of the duodenum. So my conclusion from this study is that soldering on getting further down into the D4 and jejunum is futile, uh, although the study authors themselves concluded that Doppelbaruna uh, <laughs> enteroscopy can be performed safely, efficiently and effectively. Well, was the juice really worth that squeeze, guys? We're moving on. Paper eight was on the topic of hemostatic spray powder, you know, the hemospray. This was a multi-center study. Uh, there were 14 centers in the UK, France, Germany, and the USA that uh, used hemospray as the primary endoscopic treatment for peptic ulcer bleeding. Sadly, it was all a retrospective and highly selective. How do you know it was highly selective? Because over a three-year period, these 14 centers managed to clock up the measly number of 202 patients. I mean, 202 patients with a peptic ulcer bleed is what you get in leads within six to eight months. <laughs> so if these places are any, anywhere near the size of leads, you would have expected them to clock up at least 10 times that many. But they didn't. They only published the findings of 200 patients. So it's clearly highly selective. They reported that immediate hemostasis was achieved in 88% of patients. Rebleeding rate was 12%, which is about normal for peptic ulcers. 22% of patients died within 30 days, which again is normality with standard dual modality treatment. They also reported that combination therapy, when the endoscopist decided that actually hemospray wasn't good enough on its own, we need to add some other endoscopic modalities. Patients treated with kind of multimodal therapy had a lower 30-day mortality rate compared to patients treated with monotherapy. Hmm. My conclusion from reading this paper is that our old guidelines of dual modality therapy, that's adrenaline and heat, it remains the management approach for which there is evidence, random controlled evidence. Uh, I believe that hemospray works in stopping bleeding, but I don't think it has a lasting effect. I think within 12 hours you get a re-bleeding. So in my mind, hemospray is something which stops things temporarily as you whisk the patient along the corridor to the radiological angio suite for a more lasting intervention. Now, paper number nine is entitled Unresectable Polyp Management Using Advanced Endoscopic Techniques. This was published in Surgical Endoscopy from California, USA. Uh, <laughs> I always find it interesting when the Americans uh, kind of belatedly uh, catch up with us. So in this study, the authors prospectively uh, identified 95 patients who were deemed to have irresectable colonic polyps were actually sent for uh, an attempt at resection, colonic EMR or ESD. 
And they found to their own surprise that in 70% of, uh, of these patients, the endoscopic resection was successful when referred to an expert center. Those that proved impossible were patients who actually had malignant polyps, so no surprises there, or when they were too scarred to kind of lift up because of previous attempts at, at EMR. They compared their outcomes to that of surgery and, uh, and found, unsurprisingly, that patients who underwent an endoscopic resection had shorter hospital stay, a lower number of emergency readmissions, fewer complications, and a lower 30-day mortality. And of course, this is something that we discovered 20 years ago in the UK when I was part of the bowel cancer screening program task force, and we were all concerned that uh, the bowel cancer screening was going to be the first worldwide screening program that actually could, in theory, kill the participant. But of course, by removing polyps, there is a small risk of perforation and bleeding. Now, that didn't turn out to be the case. Instead, what actually killed people was patients having been found to have big polyps and then were referred for surgery. That was entirely unexpected. And, and uh, after this finding, a diktat came out in the UK that, that these patients should be offered a um, referral to an expert tertiary center to try to remove these polyps. I'm glad that in 2021, the Americans are catching up with us and are following our lead. Manuscript number 10 was published in the Scandinavian Journal of Gastroenterology by Thurnison. It's a study on the diagnostic yield in patients below the age of 60 presented without alarm symptoms. Out of these 13,000, well, no, it was nearly 14,000 patients, a measly 47 were found to have cancer. Well, you can say that that was good news for those 0.3% of patients who, who actually happen to have cancer. But of course, there's no control group here. What do you expect to find if you put your scope down in 14,000 random patients, age and sex matched off the street? And I would have thought that you probably would find a similar number of uh, cancers in this group. Certainly, I agree with the authors that the yield of uh, gastroscopy in low-risk patients that's uh, below the age of 60 and no alarm symptoms with dyspepsia is very, very limited. And of course, endoscopy is not only very, very expensive, but it's also very, very CO2 heavy. Now, this is followed by another very similar study looking at the colorectal yield of colonoscopy in patients with irritable bowel syndrome published in clinical gastro and hepatology. This Sheffield group reported on 646 patients and surprisingly almost all of these 646 patients had some alarm feature and of course it's easier to add that to the referral. Hmm, patients saw a little bit of blood on the toilet paper a fortnight ago. Hmm, patient has maybe lost two pounds in weight. And all of a sudden, that diarrhea that the patients have suffered from for uh, two years has, has become an alarm symptom. Anyway, they found that about 5% of these patients had microscopic colitis. In fact, they found that patients with diarrhea had a slightly higher yield of, of microscopic colitis, but also of colorectal cancer. 4% of patients with diarrhea had colorectal cancer compared to 2% of patients who had more constipation. 
But I guess we can be more clever than that by adding a fit test, etc., to try to to try to find those two percent of patients in the constipation group who has cancer. Now we're moving on to another study in the Scandinavian Journal of Gastro. This is from China. It's a comparative study looking at survival for early stage esophageal cancer, and of course China is the uh, the world capital of squamous cell carcinoma. It was a big study of more than 4,000 patients with SCCs and reassuringly they reported that patients treated with endoscopic resection had a better course-specific survival than patients treated with surgery, but no difference in overall survival. Well, they're all smokers, aren't they? So they'll die from something related to that, I guess. Patients treated with neoadjuvant therapy, such as radiotherapy, had a worse survival than patients treated with EMR. And of course, they had more advanced disease while they had worse survival, I expect. Anyway, reassuring information that we take from this study is that SECs can be managed safely endoscopically, and uh, provided that it's talking early disease, T1 N0 disease. Now, paper number 13 in the Journal of Gastroenterology and Hepatology is a study from South Korea entitled Recurrence Pattern and Surveillance Strategy for Rectal Neuroendocrine Tumors. This is the biggest series of uh, rectal NETs that I've come across. 329 rectal NETs. Uh, the vast majority, 19 out of 20, were, were centimeter or smaller in size and eight were larger in size and of course that's remarkable because we're not supposed to remove endoscopically uh, rectal entities bigger than 10 millimeters anyway in spite of this there were no cases of metastatic disease in these 329 cases so that's great news uh, surprisingly three percent of patients uh, had more than one rectal NAT and a further 3% of patients developed more rectal entities after the initial diagnosis. That's surprising. The authors conclude that uh, there's no point in doing CT surveillance for these patients, but actually a flexible SIG every now and again to have a look for metachronous uh, lesions might be worthwhile. And finally, paper number 14, Surgical endoscopy, again from South Korea, is entitled Accuracy of Endoscopic Size Measurements of Early Gastric Signet Ring Carcinoma. You know, signet ring carcinomas are difficult to detect endoscopically because they arise below the surface epithelium. And the only thing you see on the endoscopic side is no, there's no disturbance of the crypt pattern or anything because it's below the surface epithelium. All you get is a slight discoloration of the mucosa. They're awfully tricky to spot. But of course, the South Koreans are experts on early gastric cancers and included 137 patients. <laughs> they, they concluded that there was a good, there was a good correlation between histology and endoscopy. Now, I don't think the paper showed that at all, because in half the patients only was, was there a match between histology and endoscopic impression. In one third of patients, the endoscopist underestimated the size of the lesion. And in 12% of cases, the endoscopist overestimated the size of the signet ring cancer. So in my mind, 
we simply can't rely on our eyes in estimating the size of that signal ring cancer. So what we should take from this paper is that we should probably map out with biopsies what we believe is the perimeter, the, the kind of the clear margin of a signet ring cancer, and confirm that histologically before we go ahead and remove poorly differentiated signet ring cancer. Well, the whole the whole topic of endoscopic resection of the signet ring cancer is rather controversial, and uh, even the Japanese wouldn't tackle a signet ring cancer bigger than two centimeters. Um, well, I must admit that I'm intensely uncomfortable with uh, endoscopically resecting a signet ring carcinoma. But of course, sometimes it's the only option if the patient is elderly, uh, very comorbid, and looking at a, the option of a hazardous total gastrectomy. Then it might be worthwhile trying to resect it endoscopically first uh, by ESD. And of course, I'd like to again conclude with a thanks to Pendax Endoscopy for supporting our Endoscopy News podcast. Uh, thanks for listening and I look forward to catching up with you again in a couple of weeks time.